there are times when I'm almost afraid to get caught up into worship knowing i got to come up here. You know, I'm back there singing the songs and joining in at the worship. Then I realize, hey, you got to go up there and say something that's kind of coherent. <laughs> and it, it's, uh, it's humbling to say the least. Revelation chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 20. Chapter 14 of Revelation begins with 144,000 male Jews who are virgins are standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. These 144,000 Jews have God the Father's name written on their foreheads. Later, in verse 9, a third angel comes on the scene and he cries out to mankind and he says, Do not take the mark of the beast or its equivalent of 666. I was told a little story this morning about this company that would advertise how many days they had gone without an accident. And they were getting up there in the number of days, and they come to the number 666. 666 days without an accident. One fellow refused to wear 666. He was fired. And I go, yow. Now there's an appeal going on that he tries to get his job back, but he was fired because he refused to wear a badge that said 666 on it. Nothing. Hmm, a taste of things to come. But anyway. But this angel's crying out, Do not take the mark. For if you do take it, you will suffer the wrath of God poured out in its full strength. And this world is yet to see that. The love of our God is great, it's beyond measure, it's long-suffering, it's patient. But when God's judgment comes, when it comes upon rebellious man, when it comes upon Satan and his demons, it also will be great. Therefore, God sends his messenger, a loud angel. No doubt this angel is awesome in appearance. And he declares loudly, Do not take the mark of the beast. Do not identify with Satan or his Antichrist. You couldn't get more plain, more simple than that. However, there will be tremendous pressure, economic pressure, to receive this mark. To fit into the system of checks and balances. To be part of this legal system that identifies with the mark of the beast. And if a person does not receive the mark of the beast, they will eventually pay by laying down their life. Their life will be taken from them, but their souls will be saved. Interesting the value of life in what you ascribe to being important. 
Just this past week, can't talk. Just this past week, we had Galid, Galid Shahid. He was an Israeli soldier who was abducted in the summer of 06 by Hamas terrorists. Immediately, his family and his friends began a campaign to free Galid. Well, this week he was freed. Five and a half years later, he was freed. They succeeded in their quest. It only required the release of 1,027 captured enemies of Israel. 1,027 for one. And some of these that Israel released were convicted terrorists serving multiple life sentences. But this is not new to the Middle East. Israel and their conflicts with their Arab neighbors have placed tremendous value on their soldiers and upon their people. In 1956, in the Sinai War, four captured Israeli soldiers were swapped for 5,500 Egyptian POWs. These kind of trades from the time Israel became a nation in 1948 until today have shocked the Arab world. Why does Israel put such a value on their people? One Kuwaiti newspaper wrote, You, Galad, are lucky to live where you live. I wish we were all like you. I'm jealous of the human values in your country, which will trade one for 1,027. I pray to be like you. Blessings on you and your country. That was a Kuwaiti newspaper. Israel God's chosen, God's elect. They get their human value, their value of life from Scripture. In Matthew 28, or 10, 28, make that, verses through 31, I'll read you here. And it's Jesus speaking. And he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for one copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows." Consider that not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. And then Jesus says, you're more valuable than sparrows. You're more valuable than the birds of the air. We should all know, we should all understand that the tribulation time is a time where human life appears to be real cheap. But not for those who are faithful to God. Not to those who refuse 
to take the mark. They are precious in his sight. If you're in a tribulation period, that means you've missed the rapture, I'm, I'm afraid. That's the way I see it. But the only way to save yourself is to refuse to take the mark and confess Jesus Christ. And you will receive eternal life, but you will pay with your life. That happens to be a trade-off that's more ridiculous than the one for a thousand and twenty-seven, by the way. But let's move into today's study. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. On the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and into his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he crowd, cried out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for six hundred furlongs. Verses 14 and 15, uh, they cause a lot of consternation for many, many Bible students. Because it's difficult for us to understand this verse for the one sitting on the white cloud wearing a golden crown, it's hard for us to imagine this being anyone but Jesus. But on the other hand, it appears that Jesus is receiving instructions from this angel to thrust in his sickle. We Christians don't take kindly to our Lord being instructed. <laughs> Not by an angel or anyone else for that matter. But Jesus listens to this angel, and he does thrust in his sickle to harvest or reap the earth. It's interesting to point out that the ancient Greek word here for ripe has a negative connotation. It's meaning overripe. It's meaning borderline starting to rot. This verse tells us the earth is overripe for God's judgment. And how often are we grieved by the evilness that we see around this world? The, the disrespect for human life or another person's rights to exist. And, and we are grieved by what we see. So we welcome or at least I do, God's judgment upon evilness. 
But it's also a comfort to know that God does not rush into judgment. He waits till it's ripe. It's almost overdue His judgment. And God brings about a calm reaping or harvesting of evil as well as good. Not a helter-skelter, out-of-control reaping, but a systematic, calm reaping. There's a parable in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and it's a parable by Jesus and I'll, I'll read it to you. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the man slept, his enemy came, sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." Parables. This parable, like all parables, are true stories. I don't believe they're fiction for a moment. I don't think our Lord ever had to reach back and use an illustration that wasn't true to make a point. And this parable is about reaping and harvesting of tares and wheat, evil and good. Parables are not simple illustrations, but they're true stories that are laid down next to a truth to bring out that truth, thus they get their name, parable. And the point of this parable is tares being evil and wheat being good are harvested at the same time. Tares are harvested to destruction, bundled up, thrown into the fire. Wheat gathered, bundled up into the storehouse or the barn. So we have harvest time here, a time of men's souls being harvested before Jesus. Jesus himself is thrusting in the sharp sickle. And some are harvested to destruction and fire, others to God's storehouse or heaven. Back to our text. In verse 17 through 20, we have two more angels that are coming on the scene. One of the angels is coming out of the temple in heaven. The next angel comes from the altar in the temple and he cries out, and it appears that he's talking to the first day, or the angel that came out of the temple, and he's saying, Thrust in your sickle and gather the clusters of grape growing on their vines, for the grapes are fully ripe. It appears that this altar angel is responding to the prayers of the saints 
who were slain, the saints who have given their life and they stand before the throne of God saying, when are you going to avenge our death? It appears. And we have an image of the winepress of God's wrath here, a trampling of grapes, ripe grapes in God's winepress. Similar to the parable of the harvest of tares and wheat. This is that tares and wheat is an example of the second coming of Jesus. It's not an example of his rapture. It's when he comes the second time in power and glory and does the judging. It's an example of that. This second coming is when tribulation uh, believing saints will be separated from those that are not saints or separated from those who appear perhaps of being saints. We've all seen Christians that appear to be saints. We've seen those who attend church and even go through the motions but there's nothing else happening with them in the Lord. And if you and I can see that, and if you and I can understand that people, some people, will attend church with nothing going on, do you think our Lord can see that also? Sure He can. In Luke 13, Jesus speaks of the final judgment day. And there's some of those that are outside crying out, Lord, Lord, open to us. And Jesus will answer, Who are you? I do not know you. And they respond, We ate and we drank in your presence. We attended your potlucks. Some of us taught Sunday school. Those are my paraphrases, by the way. And Jesus responds, I tell you, I do not know you. And I do not know where you're from. And then depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Severe words from our Lord. It is so critical, brothers and sisters, to have a pure heart before God. It is so critical not to be deceived by ourselves or anyone else. My works, your works, must be done unto the Lord with pure motives or else they're not good works. They're simply being busy. I don't think anyone ever wants to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. And thus we have the severity of the winepress of judgment, those being trampled outside of the city that do not know the Lord. That outside of the city is just the same way Jesus suffered and was crucified outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And then we have from this wine press, God's wine press of judgment, we have blood 
coming out up to a horse's bridle. That's about, about six feet, by the way. To me, that has to mean a splattering of blood that comes up to the horse's bridle because the amount of blood that will be needed for it to flow at this level, I don't think there's enough human beings on earth <laughs> for that much blood because it flows for 200 miles if you're going to take it literally as blood flowing. And I don't think there's enough people on the earth for that much blood. So I think it means splattering. But that's me. That's one of those verses I say, we will wait for further explanation. <laughs> I'm not real sure of the exact meaning. But let me, let me draw your attention in closing here back to verse 15. This, this really struck me, and I, wanna, I want it to strike you too. <laughs> no. An angel comes out of the temple of God in heaven, and he is giving Jesus instructions. Surprisingly, Jesus is responding or obeying the commands of this angel. Now, we must remember that angels are simply messengers. Where does this angel come from? The temple of God or God's throne. So perhaps this angel has a message for Jesus straight from the Father. The only knowledge of events unknown to our Lord that I know of in all of Scripture is Matthew 24. Jesus is teaching His disciples of the time. They've asked Him when the end of the age will be. And Jesus is teaching them of the signs that will lead up to the end of, age, of the age. And Jesus describes all that must go on in this world, earthquakes and famines and all these things. And then Jesus says, But of that day and hour, no one knows. No, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus is speaking and he includes himself in not knowing that hour. Now I suggest to you, this angel coming to Jesus from the throne room of the temple has a message from God the Father to Jesus. And I'm only suggesting, I'm not, don't write this down, don't stamp it in stone or anything. I'm not positively declaring, I'm suggesting that this word from the Father is what Jesus has waited to hear for centuries. The message from this angel, from God the Father, is now is the end of the age. Now it is, Jesus the date that no one knew, not even yourself. And that makes sense to me. This explains to me why Jesus does not know the hour of the time of the end of the age. 
He is humbling himself before God the Father and letting God the Father call the time. Now is the time, Jesus. Thrust in your sharp sickle and reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And Jesus does. And he reaps the earth. It would be comical if it wasn't so tragic to hear any man, any supposedly Bible student, claiming to know the day or the hour or the end of the age if it wasn't so tragic. Jesus Himself, for whatever reason, has left that with the Father alone to say that time. And in our verse there we see that Jesus is told, now it is. Now's the time. It's the end of the age now. Reap the earth. And Jesus does. To me, the beautiful harmony between the Godhead is amazing. And that's the only thing, again, that I know of in Scripture where Jesus remains willfully ignorant of. I don't think Jesus ever went to the Father and said, Hey, let me, let me know when that day is. He left it to the Father. And then we have an angel who comes from the throne room of God and he tells Jesus, Now it is. Reap the earth. So what is our response? What do we do here this morning? I know what I do. I pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. This past week, and I'm sure it happens in your lives too, I got to witness up close and personal hatred, bias, prejudice being poured out for no apparent reason, and it grieved me. When I saw this, I just go, why, Lord? Why does man hate man for no reason except simply just to hate? And it kind of shocked me, and it grieved me. How much is our Lord grieved? How much should we be praying, honestly praying for, come quickly, Lord Jesus? There's times when I am so ready to be out of here that it's ridiculous. And this week was one of those weeks. You just saw the ugliness of humanity and sin and you saw it up close and personal and you didn't like it at all. Let me get you to stand we'll close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for redeeming us. Lord, I am so blessed to be able to stand here and know that my name is written in your book of life. To know these are your people. 
You have redeemed them. You have saved us, Lord. Saved us from ourselves. Saved us from evilness, Lord. We no longer have to act out and demonstrate hate and and harm for one another. For you have redeemed us. You've placed a higher call upon our lives, Lord. We want to walk in obedience to you. We want to be like you, Jesus, our great example. So, Lord, we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are so ready. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.